0: A couple of weeks ago, I spent time with three boys. Uh, I always get time with one of them, and then about once a year i 'm foolish enough to let him convince me that his brothers should come along. Bad idea their age is eight to twelve, and uh, the the reason it 's a bad idea is they tend to attack each other verbally and uh, this happened uh, to their to their credit. It was better this year than last year but They started with the verbal put-downs, and despite my best efforts to correct them, hey, don't talk to your brother like that, and then redirect them, hey, you know, say something nice, or hey, let's talk about something else. Instead of my, despite my best efforts to correct and redirect, it just kept escalating until one of them slapped his brother, and then all the talking, all the craziness stopped. And there was immediate shame by the one who slapped his brother. And so I said, why'd you do that? He said, because he was asking for it. He started it. He was mean to me first. List of reasons. I said, does that make it right? No answer. And during this time when we had this conversation, his head was down. He wouldn't look at me. I asked him to look at me. He said, no. I said, what you're feeling right now is shame. And he snapped back, no, it's not. I'm not feeling shame. I said, yes, it is. Because you did something wrong and you know it. You feel it. No answer. I didn't know how to handle this situation. I mean, I just did what was best, the best I knew how in the moment. But here's what I did. I said, I warned him. I said, if you don't change, if you don't turn from living this way to living a different way, you're going to be miserable. And I know because I've tried. I've been there. I've lashed out at others. I felt shame and I didn't handle that shame rightly. So I said, It doesn't have to be this way, but there's only one way out. That one way is Jesus. He died in your place. He took the shame for you and He raised back to life so that you could live with Him in freedom. No reply to my invitation to Jesus either. That's the end of that story. Uh, It's the beginning of our message. We've been walking through 2 Corinthians this year, uh, and one thing that stood out to me from the beginning of this letter which Paul wrote to a church in Corinth was, uh, I guess, this teaching of Paul that God's grace leads to holy lives in which relationships thrive. And I saw that in chapter one, and now we're in chapter seven, and I saw it again. It developed over the course of, of three weeks. So uh, over the course of about two chapters, um, it's come back. And so three weeks ago, just to catch you up, um, Paul said, don't take God's grace in vain. So he's talking about grace again. He said, don't take God's grace in vain. God's grace is actually meant to fuel you towards holy living. We saw that two weeks ago. Holy living is simply becoming more like Jesus. It's what James Committed to a long time ago, but then he made public that commitment today. And it was a, a step of obedience. So, holy living, becoming like Jesus. And so, we saw that two weeks ago. Last week was Easter. So, we looked at the death and resurrection explicitly out of 2 Corinthians. And then this week, we are at the point where we're talking about relationships thriving. And so, I want us to consider what it means for relationships to thrive. And as I thought about that question, I I was like, I've got to start with what Jesus said um, when he was asked what's the greatest commandment in the law. And you've probably heard this a million times, but I hope you hear it a million more. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. That is what's most important. Love God with all of you. And here's the second. He was asked for one, he gave two. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So when we think about thriving relationships, I think that's the appropriate place to start thinking about it. I mean, that's the right answer. First love God, then love people. That's what thriving relationships look like. But how does that practically flesh itself out, right? Can you give me a little bit more detail and that's where I want us to dive into the passage that Paul wrote today. Um, and, and to give you a little bit of context before we read the passage, it's quite shocking to me that he uses the Corinthians as an example, as a model of thriving relationship. Like his relationship with the Corinthians was extensive, extensively colorful and complicated. And I'd encourage you to, you can read chapter 6, or you could just read the first Corinthians, the first letter that we have. They weren't the straight-A Christians, okay? But what we're going to see in this passage today is that Paul, Paul glows over them. He's so encouraged by them. He's so proud of them. And I'm just like, Paul, where did that come from? Because right before the place we're going to start reading, Paul said, make room for us in your hearts, we haven't withheld our affection from you, but you've withheld your heart, your affection from us. So he's, he just finished correcting them, okay? That's the context in which Paul begins to glow and say, great is my confidence in you. So I want, I want you to listen for that note of glowing encouragement, and I don't think you'll be able to miss it once you start looking for it. And then I want you to, as, as you hear that, think, why? Look as I read, as, we, as you read with me, just silently, um, look for why Paul is so encouraged and why, why, why this relationship, it seems to me like he's describing it as a thriving relationship. So what makes it thriving? So I'm gonna read the passage now. Beginning uh, in verse four of Second Corinthians chapter seven, Paul writes, great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting about you on your behalf. I'm filled with comfort. I'm overflowing with joy in all our affliction. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. But we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. As he reported to us your longing your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that my letter caused you sorrow, though only for a little while, I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance." For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything, I've boasted to him about you I was not put to shame, but as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. His affection abounds all the more toward you, as he remembers you all's obedience, how you received him with fear and trembling. And Paul finishes I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. So, again, if this is your first week here, you never would have guessed that Paul's relationship with this church was so colorful and complicated uh, and marred with sin. Like their, their church was marred with sin. These are the people that Paul uses as an example of thriving relationship, which I think should shape our understanding of, well, what should we expect when we think of having thriving relationships? These are not straight A Christians. These are not the cream of the crop that got it all together. He just gave them a stern correction and after this, in the next chapter, he's gonna give them a challenge. Yeah, you said you'd do this thing. You didn't do it. It's time to do it. And so, what we see though is right in the middle of this passage, he shows why he's so proud of them. Why his relationship with them is thriving. It's because they repented it was their repentance that made their relationship healthy and thriving and so what is thriving relationship loving god loving people how is that practically fleshed out how does it come to be it comes to be through repentance and repentance is something that starts with you and god but it always when it's when it's done appropriately and rightly it always flows over into relationship with others the, the word that, that's translated repentance, the Greek word metanoia, literally means change of mind. So it means turning away from yourself and turning toward God. And, and I want to sp- explain what repentance is by saying what it's not. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, misunderstandings about this word. Uh, one of them is represented by the Westboro gang, Fred Phelps and his gang, they wear shirts, and in this picture you see a, a lady wearing a shirt that says, God hates fags, and then she carries multiple signs, but one of them says, repent or perish. And that that's true. Like, we do have to repent or perish, but she's framing it up totally wrong. What Jesus said is, repent and live. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And so, I think repentance is kind of a taboo word because it gets grouped with God's wrath, and it's, it's often misunderstood and misrepresented, like this picture, but it's also misunderstood in the sense that sometimes people repent, and they think, well, I did that, and so it's done, and so I'm done with that. I don't need to repent. I've already repented. I'm good to go. Um, that's not the biblical picture of repentance either. Like, it's true that once you come to Christ, you're justified. You can't do You can't earn his love. Uh, You can't do anything to make him love you. Um, It's not about what you do, it's about what Christ did for you. But when you're changed, it produces something. A healthy tree produces healthy fruit. And so this is what repentance produces ongoing change. This wasn't the first time the Corinthians believed, this wasn't the time that they came to know Jesus initially. But this is what John the Baptist talked about when he preached, and this is probably one of my favorite single lines in the Bible, produce produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That's the ongoing change. That's the ongoing part. The only way we produce fruit in walking with Jesus is keeping with repentance. And repentance also includes change. And we we saw that in the passage. Paul contrasted worldly sorrow with godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is temporary. You're sad, you're sorrowful, only for a time. And then it leads to change, to zeal, to earnestness, to an intense desire to do what's right. But the sorrow doesn't last because the point of the sorrow isn't to be sorrowful. The point of the sorrow is to turn to Jesus. That's repentance. But worldly sorrow, you're sad and you're sorry, but you don't have any power to change. You're just sad and you're sorry. So, repentance is not about feelings primarily, it's about a change of mind. So, don't confuse your intense feelings of remorse, your intense feelings of guilt or shame with repentance. My friend, my young, immature friend, he he didn't repent, he was just ashamed. You have to turn towards Jesus in order to repent. And him alone, just like that first song we sang, it's nothing but him, nothing but his blood because he alone has the power to bring about real change, real life because he is the true and eternal life. So I had some friends in college that believed God will forgive you if you're really, really sorry. Like if you really mean it, then he'll forgive you. Is that true? That's a way of earning God's forgiveness. Because it's how sorry you are. I'm, I'm all for being sorry. I mean, Paul's saying you should be sorrowful, but to a point of turning to Jesus, to a point of repentance. Because it's not your sincerity that saves you, it's Jesus alone. So the same Jesus that died to save you from sin and hell, he's living to save you from yourself and all of our struggle with ongoing sin. Paul writes about that in Romans 5. He says, if while we were enemies, we were made right with God through the death of Jesus, listen to this, how much more, having been made right with God, will we be saved by his life? So repentance isn't just a one-time deal. It is meant to produce ongoing change in our life. You're like, okay, Ben, you're starting to lose me because you're explaining, explaining, explaining. I need a story. I got a story for you. (laughs) The story is from Pilgrim's Progress, which is an allegory of the Christian life written in 1678. So if you end up reading it, just fair warning, have a dictionary next to you. It's Old English, or get a contemporary version. But it's a really popular book, it really connects with people because it tells the Christian life in the form of a story, an allegory. So here's one story from that story. Uh, Christian, who's the main character, was trapped by giant despair in the dungeon of Doubting Castle. Christian was there with his friend Hopeful Christian had come to a place of such despair there in that castle that he'd considered suicide. And his friend Hopeful urged him, just be patient a little bit longer. And Hopeful reminded Christian all those difficulties that we'd previously overcome, all those those things that God had brought us through. And so they began praying together and they continued praying throughout the night when, and I quote from John Bunyan, the author, Christian realizes what a fool I am to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk in freedom. I have a key in my chest called promise that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. I don't have to be cooped up here in this dungeon. I got this key. That's good news, says Hopeful. Good brother, pluck it out of your chest and try. Try the key. They try it on the dungeon door which opens with ease, as do other doors in the castle. Outside, they tried on a big iron gate, which finally opens, though the lock went damnable hard. And as they pushed the big gate open, its rusty hinges creaked so loudly that giant despair was awakened. And running with desperate speed away from the giant, Christian and hopeful finally found the way by which they entered Bypath Meadow, and they were once again on the king's highway. Before going on, they decide to erect a pillar on the side of which they engrave a warning. Over this stile is the way to Doubting Castle, which is kept by giant despair, who despises the king of the celestial country and seeks to destroy his holy pilgrims. So there's your story. (laughs) Repentance isn't about how sorry you are, if you're stuck in a dungeon, you can't be sorry enough to get out. But there's a key. It's Jesus. All of God's promises are fulfilled in yes, in Jesus. They are yes in Jesus, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2. So there is a key. The key is promise. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And when you use that key, He isn't just meant to be looked at and worshiped on Sunday morning, but used. When you use him, it leads to God's people being encouraged. And that's what this passage is all about. Paul is saying, my life is hard. Conflicts without, fears within, but God comforted us. And he encouraged us through his people, through the coming of Titus, who came from you, Titus saw your repentance and Titus told us about it. So Titus was encouraged. So we were encouraged. And everybody was encouraged. And that's at the beginning and the end of the chapter. It's your repentance and the obedience that it produces. It's encouragement for the people around you. So, what that means is the best thing that you can do for the church. For this church, the best, or whatever church God calls you to, preaches the gospel of Jesus, whatever church God calls you to, whatever city you live in or area or state or country, the best thing that you can do in the world and for the world is to walk faithfully with Jesus, to live a life of repentance, to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And that's a, lot, that's a lofty claim. The best thing you can do for the world is to follow Jesus. I mean, I'll admit that's a lofty claim, but I believe it. Did you hear about the woman who lost her husband in the ISIS bombings on Palm Sunday in Egypt? She said with children by her side, the reporter gave her an opportunity to say, what would you say to the, the guy, the men who's responsible for this? She said, I'm telling him, may God forgive you. And we also forgive you. Believe me, we forgive you. It's powerful. But that type of maturity, that doesn't happen overnight. It's formed through years of faithful walking with Jesus, years of repenting, dying to self, living for Jesus. It's not about perfection. It's about direction. And the best thing that you can do for your family, for your friends, for your coworkers is to walk with Jesus faithfully. I've got a couple of different friends who have recently told me how encouraging it is to see how Christ has been changing their wives, each one of their respective wives and their families. And, and the husband hasn't been pestering her. I mean, praying for her, yes, but not pestering her. It's Christ at work. And these are godly women, but they're repenting and they're changing. And the husbands love it. And I, as a friend, love it. I'm encouraged. So keep repenting. Bear fruit as you keep repenting. And that's why Paul was just glowing. He wasn't ignoring all the problems of the Corinthians. He's saying right there, that's the bullseye. I know it because I've experienced that myself. So as we do this and as we offer this to people, I want us to learn from Paul's example. There's three applications that I found on how we can offer repentance really well. Um, the way that Fred Phelps gang out of Westboro do it, we can all agree that's not well at all. That's, that's just not good. To say, yeah, you've repented once, you're good to go. Just keep coming to church and bring it, bringing your money. That's not, that's not good at all. But here's, here's, here's a good way to offer and live in relationships of repentance. The first is repentance starts with you. If you're not willing to receive it, you can't really give it. Paul did receive correction, and he glowed over them, like I said, because he had the firsthand experience of knowing the incredible benefits that living this way brings. And the second way is to offer a hand of correction and a hand of help. If you just offer someone a hand of correction, you know what that feels like? A slap in the face. Hey, fix that. But if you offer them a hand of help, then you feel like a friend because you are being a friend. And and this is the way that God does it. The spirit that we sang about, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, but he doesn't just convict us, he is the come alongside helper. So hand of correction, hand of help. And Paul says, I'm only doing this for your good. Like This is his hand of help in the passage. He said, I made you sorrowful So that you wouldn't suffer any loss. So what that means is, this is just for your good. I'm doing it for your good. I don't enjoy this, (laughs) but I enjoy seeing you successful, and so it's worth it. And here's the third way that Paul uh, offered repentance really well, is he believed in them. Uh, The whole passage just exudes his confidence in them, his pride in them, Uh, and then you see it at the end when in verse 16 he says, I rejoice in everything. I have confidence in you. Um, So that's thriving relationship. And that's how you can move towards thriving relationship. Each person becoming more like Jesus as those around you encourage you on. And you encourage them on by becoming more like Jesus. Um, It's the process of repentance worked out in community. So let's continue. Uh, We're going to conclude with more applications. Uh, If you want to be an encouraging person, then repent. Um, you'll experience God's power in the midst of your weakness. Repentance is not fun, but it's worth it. And if someone around you repents, be encouraged and encourage them. And that's exactly, again, what Paul was doing in this passage. If someone that you know comes to you and shares, invites you into their repentance, encourage them. Say, way to go. That's the bullseye. Good job. It's not perfection, but direction. You're heading in the right direction. You're back on the king's highway. And if you're in a hard season, because Paul wrote this when he was in a hard season, conflicts without, fears within. And uh, if you're in a hard season, look for comfort in the right place. Don't turn to drugs, alcohol, food, the wrong people, Netflix, (laughs) numb it. Look for comfort in the right place. It's God who brings comfort and he normally brings it through other people. One other thought that encouraged me was, you know, if you're like characterized by a life of repentance, the charge of hypocrisy, whether it's from someone else or from the devil, it doesn't stick. It just doesn't stick at all. The devil or others might come to you and say, you're two-faced, you say one thing and do another. Then you can say honestly without being prideful, no, come and see. I'm being changed. Like, I'm still in process, but keep watching. Like, stay in my life, because over time you're going to see Jesus. So that charge of hypocrisy just doesn't stick. And if you have called yourself a Christian, maybe for a year, maybe for 50 years, but if you've never experienced Christ changing your life, I'd encourage you to consider whether or not you're really saved, whether or not you're really a Christian. Um, Change doesn't happen overnight, but it does happen. Repentance really does produce ongoing change. And no, I don't have anyone in mind, don't have an agenda here. I hope it doesn't apply to anybody because I don't like issuing this challenge, but I don't want you to suffer loss in anything through me or through this church. And this would be to suffer loss in the greatest way, to be misled about your standing with God, your relationship with God. And Jesus warned us that would be the case for some, and I only ask because I care. I want to see you be successful. If you have any questions about that, um, talk to me, talk to someone you know. You can know you should know you're standing before God. And if you are saved, if you know that Christ has changed you and forgiven you, that he's your Lord, your leader, keep repenting. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Fruit doesn't save you. Don't look and show off all your fruit. Oh yeah, that's why I'm saved, because I did all these good... No! No! Fruit doesn't save you. It's evidence that you've been changed. It's evidence of God's grace in your life that's led you to holy lives in which relationships are beginning and continuing to thrive. What, the, the worst thing that you can do to this call to repentance, the worst thing is not reply, not respond. So let's respond today. We're gonna respond by praying, I'm just talking to God.